Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, most of you would know me. My name is Derek. I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. And again, it is my privilege to be allowed to be up here this morning and bring you God's Word. Um, the responsibility of bringing God's Word always weighs very heavily on me. Um, and so, as a lot of you have encouraged me, it is good to know, um, you know that the Holy Spirit works in this way. It is, it is not a trivial thing to be bringing God's Word. So I ask you to open your Bibles at Job chapter 38. We'll first read through chapter 38 together. Sorry, 37. Just checking. <laughs> Always an easy way to get out of a bag. <laughs> <Make a mistake. coughs> but can I also say before we start how encouraging it is for me to know what's been on my heart this whole week and then hearing Annie's testimony and Simon's children's talk and it being completely in line with what I feel the Lord's put on my heart about Job, chapter 37. Please read with me from verse 1. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar, he thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. So that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from, from the, the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind. Can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told what I, that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun 
Bright, bright as it is in the sky after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? So far from God's word. In, um, in the week's preparation, I have come across quite a few commentaries, but I've also heard it before, and perhaps you have as well, the Bible being referred to as the book of Jesus, or the book of Christ. And in a very real sense, this is true. You might have heard the phrase, the Old Testament is Christ concealed, the New Testament is Christ revealed. But to say it more eloquently, in the Old Testament we see the preparation of the coming of Jesus. In the Gospels, we are presented with the Jesus that has come. He has come. He is come. In Acts, Jesus is proclaimed. Jesus, salvation in Jesus is proclaimed. In the epistles, the personification of Jesus. In other words, this Jesus that has saved now has a personal relationship with his people. And then in Revelation, the predominance of Jesus. He's now on the throne. We read in Revelation 19 of the rider on the white horse that's got written on his robe and on his thigh, King of King, Lord of Lords. So this is the same Jesus that we are prepared for in the Old Testament, presented with in the New Testament. I say this to you because when we approach any book in the Bible, this should be our overarching understanding. How does this book either prepare me for Christ, or how does it present me with Christ? So, if we walk away from this study of, of the book of Job, and we are not clearly seeing how it prepares us for Christ, and connecting it with how Christ is presented in the New Testament, I think we've gone wrong. There's many other uh, overarching themes in the book of Job but this is one we always have to come back to not just for the book of Job but for any book of the Bible it's the book of Jesus of course in our study of the book of Job or any book for that matter to understand the context in which the book is written what the author was who the audience was is critically important and to this extent, we have spent weeks looking at the ancient Near Eastern context in which Job was written, the similarity with the wisdom of the civilizations um, around them in, in Egypt and Mesopotamia. We also spend a lot of time looking at the advice Job's friends were giving Job and ultimately why they were wrong. And we call it transactional theology. And this is all helpful and necessary as we journey through 
the purpose of the book and what it's pointing us to. But if we study this Bible book, this book about Jesus, and I say that very confidently that Job is a book about Jesus, we need to not walk away without being very clearly pointed to the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Last week, we saw the work of Jesus. Jesus saves. Remember the neon sign I asked you to imagine. And I'm going to ask you to imagine that same sign today. And today, I'm going to show you how Elihu points to the person of Jesus. He's our saviour. So as we now get back into Elihu's speech, last week we saw the surprise appearance of the narrator in chapter 32, and him, together with Elihu, provided helpful new information for us to understand and answer the dilemma of the book. The answer, or sorry, the question we've been grappling with is, does Job have a problem? Is there a problem in Job's heart? And I think we very clearly saw that, yes, there is a problem. And the lion pointed very clearly to it, and the narrator also pointed to it. In chapter 33, Elihu continued and said, Job, don't be dismayed. God is speaking to you through the suffering. It is not unjust. And he shared three, three ways in which God speaks. Through dreams and visions, suffering, and through messengers. And can I say, through the week I've been so encouraged by several people just confirming with me that yes, they've had dreams. And they are convinced that it's God speaking directly to them. In a very personal way. To bring them a message of encouragement or to shine a light on the sin in their life. We also heard last week, Mark confirm, a lot of um, people currently in Islam is turned to Christ through dreams. It's a very regular testimony in their conversion. We also saw last week in Hebrews chapter 1 how it is Christ, it is Jesus that speaks to us. In the Old Testament, he spoke to us through prophets, but today he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. So, we're now at the point that we clearly answer the question, does Job have a problem? Yes, he does. His problem is self-righteousness. He was so focused on himself and his own innocence that he placed that above God's righteousness. So he was completely inwardly focused. So today, as we continue with Elihu's speeches, you'll notice that there's a, there's a real shift in Elihu's focus. He's kind of come in and diagnosed the problem, and he's now going to start pointing more and more to the solution. So before we get to the, the text, and we'll briefly go through Job chapter 35, 36, and then a bit slower through 37. Just another few things to help us with context. The first thing is I want to mention the word theodicy. So what is theodicy? 
It's a word that some of you may have heard and understand, but some of you might hear it for the first time. So theodicy is what we call it when we argue for God's righteousness in the face of evil. We call that effort of ours, or that argument, we call theodicy. So theodicy attempts to answer the question, if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? So I mention this because a lot of commentators say that that is the main purpose of the book of Job, is to argue for God's righteousness and how God is all-powerful, all-knowing, yet suffering and evil still exists in the world. And I think that's a, that's a real theme. I think it's true. The book of Job does give us wisdom about why there's suffering in the world. But like I said before, if we step back even further, like helicopter view, the book of Job must point us to Christ. It must prepare us in some way for the presentation of Christ. When we started the book of Job, we also said that Job is a wisdom book. So I just wanted us to reflect on that again. What is wisdom? And how does the book of Job help us to understand what is wisdom? So when we read in Exodus, the term has the meaning to be a skillful artisan. Now, the artisans that got the gifts to make all the ornaments in the, in the temple. However, when we get to Deuteronomy, the, the word chokmah in Hebrew takes on the meaning that it's skillfulness in obeying God's law. In Proverbs, we learn that God used wisdom when he created the whole world. It's part of the foundation of creation is wisdom. Two weeks ago, in Job chapter 28, we saw that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So we continue to have, like an onion, these layers peeled away about what wisdom is. So I think it's helpful to describe wisdom as skillfulness in how to live within God's creation. And then if I apply the filters that we've seen from Elihu, he's saying... It's skillfulness in how to live in God's creation while hearing and seeing God in everything. We can also talk a little bit about the function of the life. So what's the function of this character in the book? He comes out of nowhere, he points right to the problem, and then we kind of don't hear from him again. But he does, as we've shown, feature as a central figure in the book. We cannot ignore what he says, because if you ignore what Elihu says, you completely miss the purpose of the book. You never get to the point that Job has a problem. Elihu is the only one pointing to the real problem. So, so in real sense, we have to see and acknowledge that he functions as a true prophet. He brings truth to Job. He defends God's justice, he defends God's righteousness. And in that way, he paves the way for Job's encounter with God, which is imminent. 
So Elihu continues to assert God's righteousness. So he corrects the scales. He says, Job, your innocence was here. God's righteousness, Elihu says, no. God's righteousness is much bigger. God is bigger. He points to Job's real problem. Job, you're self-righteous. And because you're so focused on yourself, you cannot hear God speaking to you. So, in a real sense, God's righteousness is also an overarching theme in the book of Job. It's about understanding that God, even in the face of evil, even in the face of suffering, that God is still righteous. He's bigger. He has a bigger purpose that we don't understand. So, in this sense, the book of Job is theodicy. Because it continues to shine the light on God's righteousness over and above our righteousness. So we arrive now at Job 35. I invite you to open your Bibles at the book of Job, a couple of pages back. And this whole chapter, as we follow on from last week, is considered theodicy because he continues to argue for God's righteousness in the face of Job's suffering. In verse 6, Elihu replies by responding out, uh, sorry, by pointing out that because God is supreme over all good and bad situations, He's not affected by our actions, be it innocent or sinful. That's a humbling thought for us, isn't it? Elihu is not saying that righteous living doesn't have a point doesn't have value, but he's saying that the effects of our actions is horizontal and not vertical. So the things we do affects the created world around us, but it doesn't affect God. God is not affected by if we believe in him or not. It's a very difficult thing for us to accept. Because our sinful hearts place more value on us in this created world. We think God wants our, or, or God needs our worship. Sorry, He does want our worship. But it doesn't need it. It doesn't affect Him. And this is what Elijah is saying. In verse 11, Elijah says that even though God is supreme and our acts or our actions doesn't affect God, that doesn't mean that he's not concerned with what happens with us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. And he, it doesn't mean he doesn't listen to these people's prayers. He says, but when a sufferer remains unanswered by God, it is not because God is unjust. It is not because God is silent. But it's because there's something preventing a person from hearing what God is saying. This is what we heard Elihu saying so clearly to Job in chapter 33. And in verse 12, he says, one of those reasons might be arrogance. Verse 14, he says, it may be those that do not see him or do not believe him. Verse 15, those that say God never punishes wickedness. So those that do not believe in God's justice. Or verse 16, those like Job speaking 
without knowledge. So speaking without wisdom, or speaking even with incorrect knowledge. It is just as dangerous to speak with an incorrect theology than to speak with no theology. And we saw that. That's one of the things the book of Job demonstrates. And then we, we, we come to Elihu's final speech, which starts in chapter 36, and it continues all the way through to the end of chapter 37. So Elihu continues, chapter 36, verse, verse 1. And again, Elihu's focus at this point is still completely on Job. He's speaking directly to Job. In verse 5 to 6, he says, God is big and mighty. So he's now repeating things he's said before. God will punish the wicked and speak to the afflicted. So Job is one of these afflicted that he's talking about in verse 6. And Job needs to hear this. It's encouragement. Job, God does speak to you. When you're afflicted, if you are here this morning, this is encouragement. Verse 7, because God enthrones the righteous. Elihu is here bringing truth that is revealed to us later in the New Testament. And in Revelation 3, verse 21, we read, Jesus saying, this is Jesus' words, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And Elijah is already pointing to that here in chapter 36. God enthrones the righteous. So he's kind of pointing forward to God's plan of salvation. Of course, in that context, they thought it meant uh, he enthrones them physically on earth. And he gives them physical blessing. Verse 8, all the way through to 21. Elihu continues and he repeats some of his previous assertions. God speaks and warns for the purpose of saving, is what Elihu is saying. He speaks through Jesus, like we saw last week. But he warns and he says, the hardened hearts and the wicked will end up in the pit, which is shul or, or death. So if you continue to hear God's word and you harden your heart, and you deliberately choose not to believe, the warning's here. There's only one place that ends, and that is in the pit, in Shul. Death. Physical death that none of us can escape, but really pointing to eternal death. But, he says, again, the encouragement comes for those that do hear his call and do hear his voice, he will save them. That's up to verse 21. Then from verse 22, I see Elihu taking a very specific shift in his focus. So up to this point, Elihu's been somewhat Job-focused, speaking to Job and pointing him to God. But from verse 22 onwards, all the way through to the end of chapter 37, Elihu is completely God-focused. So, it's kind of 
Elihu's done what he can for Job, and he now says, Job, I'm not your answer. But I know God is your answer. And he spends the rest of his words pointing to God. So put this in parallel with how Job chose to spend his final words. Do you remember chapter 31? And how Job chose his last words to defend his own innocence. So Elihu is here choosing something completely different. And we'll, we'll see what he says today. So in verse 22, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him? Or said to him, you have done wrong. Remember to extol his work which people have praised in song. So he turns his focus to God's power. Elias making the point that God's governing of creation is now the focus. It's not only a display of power, but also an instrument, a tool in God's hand. And this is also how we have to see suffering. It's not a gift to be suffering. Gift, uh, sorry, suffering in itself is a tool that God uses to point us to one place, and that is to Christ. It points to Him. So also, Elijah is saying, these mighty accidents of creation and how, how God governs them. That's, creation is not the gift. It is the one holding it in his hand is what we need to see. The rain, for example, is not just evidence of God's sovereignty over nature. But he says God uses it for his divine justice also. He causes it for correction. Or to show mercy, to water the land, to provide and give food. So Elihu now continues and he starts praising God for his control over creation. Verse 25, all humanity has seen it, mortals gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hand with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. He thunders his thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle know that it's coming. And there's no real um, separation between these words and the start of chapter 37 that we started reading together. His words kind of flow straight into chapter 37. And he says, At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. So those seven or eight verses before that, the end of chapter 36, describes why Job's, um, sorry, Elihu's heart is pounding. Why it's leaping from its place. Because he's, he's busy praising God. 
And he says to Job, listen. Listen, Job. Not listen to my words. Listen to the rumbling of thunder approaching. Listen to nature. Listen to God's creation. This is not the personal talk, the voice of God to you personally in your heart that we saw Elihu pointing to in chapter 33 through visions and dreams, suffering and messages. He's now talking about a much more obvious speaking of God, which we call general revelation. This is God that everybody can see. He continues, he unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven. After that comes sounds of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. Verse 5, God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. Verse 6, he says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain, be a great downpour. So that everyone he has made may know his work. So everyone. The point is there. Everyone. Elihu is saying, Job, if you think you cannot hear God's voice, again, you are wrong. Because even if internally you have drifted away and for some reason you cannot hear God, God's word or his voice, he has an unmistakable way that you can hear God's voice. Look at what he said, the works of his hand. Because this is for everyone. Verse 8, the animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes down from its chamber. The breath of God produces ice. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the earth. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth. So all pointing to acts in God's nature, in his creation, that God is under control of. The, the challenge we have today is that with our scientific knowledge, we think that we've figured these things out, like weather patterns. We understand where rain comes from. We understand how lightning is produced by electric charge between the atmosphere and the earth. And we think that that, oh, Job just didn't understand science. Or he lied. But we are, we are so wrapped up in our own knowledge that we do not think, but even if we do understand how lightning works, why is it designed this way? Surely all of this intricacy doesn't point to random chaos and just accidentally everything happened. It's impossible. So even though God allows us to understand some of these things, because he chooses to reveal that to us, we still have to ask, why? Why did he decide that the weather patterns needed to work like this? Why did he decide the earth has to rotate at exactly the speed? Well, we know, because if it doesn't, we all will be falling off the face of the earth. <laughs> So why did God want us to stay planted on the earth? There's always a why. You know, the three-year-old question, but why? Why? And eventually, if you have 
enough wise, you will end up not knowing the answer. <laughs> and this is the lion's point. So don't be deceived in thinking that because of our scientific knowledge today, this is not applicable. I point you again to verse 7. It says, so that everyone, not everyone at that time, but everyone, he has made, can see his works. And then in verse 14, he again stops and he says, listen, Job, stop and consider God's wonders. Now he's, he's really pleading with Job in a much more personal way than any of the friends ever pleaded with Job. Elijah is saying to Job, please stop. Just don't think of anything else. Just stop and think about what you observe about God in creation. And really think about it. Consider his wonders. All those why questions that you cannot answer. Yet our world doesn't self-destruct. Yet the sun continues to come up. Yet tomorrow is a, is a new day. God is faithful. How does that happen? It's a wonder. It's God's wonder. And this is what Elihu is saying to Job. Okay, Job, you've been, you've been deaf internally to hear God's voice. We've pointed to the sin. But that doesn't mean you cannot hear God's voice. Go back to basics. How does God reveal himself to you? Look at his wondrous creation. Stop, Job. Consider who this God is that sustains all things. Stop and consider who is this invisible God that you are asserting you cannot hear him speak. Who's this invisible God? Because although we cannot physically see him, we can see him through his works. And that's why we chose Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20 to read today from the New Testament. Just to remind you about the preparation and the presentation. So Elijah who's preparing us here, he's pointing us to a creator. To them, it's an invisible God. They have not seen what God looks like. But then Paul shares with us, the sun is the image of the invisible God. The sun is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, or rulers, or authorities. So can you see how Elihu pointing to God's work, he's pointing to Christ. For us, looking back through the shadow of the cross, we cannot deny that this is what's happening. Jesus is the creator of all things. And in this, Elihu is preparing us to say, in those darkest moments when you doubt, look at the creator of all things. And what will you see? Who will you see? You will see the image of the invisible God that has created everything. That image is Jesus. The Greek word for image is icon. 
we use it today to talk about music stars or movie stars are seen to be icons of the world. But in the true sense of how the word came into being, it points to the creator. Jesus is an icon of God. Icon means the manifestation or the embodiment or a true image of the original. So in Christ, the unknowable God becomes known. We have to realize that God is invisible and the extent of His nature to us is unknowable. We cannot know all that there is to know about God because He is infinite and we are finite. But God chooses to reveal parts of His nature to us. And as we study God's Word that is revealed to us, that is called theology. Theology is the study of what God chooses to reveal to us through Scripture. That is theology. So when you do Bible study, you are a theologian. So what Elijah is doing here is he's pointing to the invisible, infinite God and saying to Job, Job, he's not far away. You can hear him, you can feel him in the, the vibrations of the thunder. As real as that is, so real do you need to know that God is coming. It is Him roaring. It is Him causing that mighty noise. So Elihu continues in verse 15. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes His lightning flash? Do you know how the, cloud, the clouds hang poised? Can you join him in spreading out the skies? Verse 18. Can you tell us what we should say to him? Verse 19. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? By these questions, Elihu is demonstrating to Job that he doesn't really know as much as the things he knows about God. These questions you've been asking turns out to be fairly foolish questions. Verse 21. Now no one can look at the sun as bright as it is in the skies after the wind has swept them clean. So this talks about a bright sunny day. When the skies are clean, we cannot look at the sun. That's how bright it is. And he says, but out of the north, he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. So he's again pointing to something bigger than the sun coming. In Exodus 34, we read that Moses' face, the skin on his face glowed because of his proximity to God, because of speaking to God. In the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, which we will hear in the benediction, it says, May the Lord's face shine upon you. In Matthew 17, 2, where Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, his face shone like the sun, and his garments were white as light. Acts 9, we read about Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. 
And suddenly a bright heavenly light shone around him. And a voice answered him and said, I am Jesus. Why do you persecute me? In Revelation 21 we read that in the new Jerusalem there will be no sun on earth because God's splendor illuminates the new Jerusalem. So Eli is pointing out and saying something bigger is coming. In the north he comes in golden splendor. And we need to see this as it is presented to us in the New Testament. This is what Eli is pointing to. God is on his way. And he doesn't just arrive calmly on a Sunday morning. He's coming in awesome majesty. In awesome majesty. The Almighty, verse 23, is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Therefore, people revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? So Elihu is saying, stop, Job, stop speaking. Look, use your senses. If your heart fails you, if your heart deceives you, use your senses. Hear, look, feel, smell. Look at God's work in creation. And let that be your starting point to point you back to Christ. It is the invisible God that created everything. We are prepared for that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we very clearly shown and presented that that is Jesus. And last week, the neon sign was Jesus saves. Today, it's one word. It's Jesus. His work is He saves. But the person of Jesus is He's our Savior. So as the, the book of Jesus, the Bible, as we now get to the conclusion of Job, I think this is a, a very helpful focus to have. It's to keep asking the question, how is this preparing me for the presentation of Christ? The purpose of everything that God reveals about himself points to our Savior, it points to Christ. So what we need to see today out of Elihu is that even though everything failed with Job, at this point there's no evidence that Job has listened or repented to anything that the three friends or Elihu has said to him. We know that he eventually does, but he hasn't at this point yet. We should all take courage in that, that often when we encourage somebody that is suffering it is not our words or our goodwill that will make the difference Jesus does when we try and convince somebody of the Holy Spirit or of the truth of Jesus it is not our words that make the difference it's Jesus that makes the difference he chooses to reveal himself at his time and for his purpose. But the warning from Elihu is very clear. That if you repeatedly harden your heart, when you hear God's call, when you hear Jesus presented, 
at some point he's going to stop warning you. And the end result of that is death. So Elihu's calling us today to see the person of Jesus. Through him, everything has been created. Through him, everything is upheld. Through him, we are all here today. And next week, we will see Job's encounter with Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise and thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that even, you know, concealed way in the Old Testament, you continue to reveal yourself to us in a very deliberate and purposeful way. Lord, we pray, please encourage us all here this morning. Please may these words find a place in our hearts and grow and be fruitful. And may it continue to revive us and encourage us. Lord God, above all things, we praise you and we thank you that these words also fill us with joy. And may we leave here this morning with your joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.